Welcome to the introductory episode of the While We're Waiting Hope After Child Loss podcast. I'm your host, Jill Sullivan, and I'm one of the co-founders of the While We're Waiting ministry. In this introductory episode, I wanted to spend a few minutes sharing a bit of my personal story of child loss, the ministry that was born out of that experience, and also let you know a little bit about what to expect from this podcast in the future. My story of loss begins in February of 2008. Life was perfect. I was happily married to my husband, Brad, with two beautiful daughters, Hannah and Bethany. We lived in Arkansas where I had a good job as a speech-language pathologist. My husband was a high school principal. Bethany was thriving in the seventh grade, and Hannah was enjoying life as a sophomore in high school. It was really kind of a unique family situation. We all either attended or worked in the same school district, so our lives revolved around school and church activities. Then in mid-February, Hannah began to develop some confusing symptoms. Severe headaches with an upset stomach in the mornings, dilated pupils, and double vision. We took her to our pediatrician, who referred us to an ophthalmologist since so many of her issues seemed to be related to vision. The ophthalmologist we were referred to was actually someone we had known in college, but we hadn't seen him for a number of years and had no idea that he was now an ophthalmologist. But Tommy, as we had known him, was truly a gift from God on our journey. We got reacquainted as he examined Hannah, and honestly, we weren't really all that concerned at this point. But when he said, if it were my daughter, I'd want her to have an MRI, we had him go ahead and make us an appointment. Hannah and I went together to get her MRI the next morning. While all of this was going on, our younger daughter, Bethany, had been diagnosed with mono, so we had to leave her at home while we went to the hospital. I figured the whole thing would take one, maybe two hours, and then I could get back home to check on her. They got her strapped down to the table, and the banging, that that jackhammer noise of the MRI began. And after a few minutes, the technician came out of her booth, and she handed me a couple of tickets to the hospital cafeteria. And she said, when this is over, I want you and Hannah to go have lunch in the cafeteria, and then you can come back by here in case we need to do any additional scans. I quickly let her know that I needed to get back home as soon as possible because I had another daughter who was sick, and and we didn't have time to stay for lunch. She said, okay, and went back in her booth and finished the MRI, and as I was helping Hannah up off the table, she held those same two tickets out to me and and insisted that we go down for lunch and then come back by when we were done. You know, we moms know when something is up. This seemed awfully suspicious to me, but you know, I kind of tend to be an optimist, and I figured maybe this was routine when you have something like a brain MRI done. You know, I, I didn't know. So Hannah and I rushed through lunch and returned to the MRI suite where the technician had pulled a couple of chairs together for us to sit in. She told us that her ophthalmologist was on the way over to talk with us about the results of the MRI, and, you know, when she said that, my heart just sank. I knew something was up. Tommy arrived just a few minutes later and told us that Hannah had a brain tumor. He took us in the technician's booth and he showed it to us on the screen. Hannah and I were both crying by this time, and he sat down with us, held our hands, and prayed with us. He walked us out to my car and even offered to drive us home. I was capable of driving myself, though, and we headed home where we had to break the news to her dad and her sister. I'll let my husband share a little bit about that evening in a, in a future episode. We reported to Arkansas Children's Hospital early the next morning and were met with a whirlwind of activity. Another MRI, blood tests, steroid treatments, on and on it seemed to go. Her brain surgery was scheduled for Tuesday, and it was a success. 
The surgeon came out and assured us that they were able to get the entire tumor without causing any damage to Hannah's brain. But of course, it would be sent off for biopsy, and the results of that would determine the next step. We went home from the hospital just a few days later, but we knew that those biopsy results were just kind of hanging over our heads. When we returned to the hospital to have her stitches removed and find out the results, we were met by her surgeon and another doctor who was introduced to us as an oncologist. He explained to us that Hannah's tumor was a grade 4 glioblastoma. You know, I'm the kind of person who immediately started to think, how do you spell that? I'm going to go straight home and Google that. And apparently he could read my mind because he said, don't go home and Google glioblastoma. It's a terminal diagnosis in older people, but she's young and she's healthy and I think we have a chance to beat this. And I didn't go home and Google it. Together as a family, we made the conscious decision to put Hannah in God's hands and trust him with her life. Hannah began a six-week series of radiation treatments to her brain and an oral chemotherapy regimen. She would go to school every day, and I would pick her up around seventh period. We'd drive an hour to Little Rock for radiation, drive an hour home. She'd do her homework, take her chemo pills, and head to bed. For several months, all went well. She finished the radiation treatments without any complications, completed her sophomore year with all A's, enjoyed a fun summer, and began her junior year in the fall. She had an MRI every two months, and we got an all-clear every time. We began to think that we were going to see the end of this, that we were going to reach a cure. But in September, she began having symptoms that were eerily similar to what she had experienced in February. An MRI was done and revealed that the cancer had returned in the form of multiple tumors in her brainstem and spine. We started a new chemotherapy regimen, or a new treatment regimen, 20 radiation treatments to her brain and spinal cord, and two IV chemotherapy drugs. The radiation worked and and shrank the tumor somewhat, but it took such a toll on her body that she was unable to begin the chemotherapy as scheduled because her, her blood counts, particularly her platelets, were always so low. She was finally able to start chemo the week before Christmas, but by the 1st of January, she was having difficulty walking. She began to lose her vision. And an MRI revealed that in spite of the chemo, the cancer had returned in the original site. That area could not be re-radiated. Surgery was not an option at this point because the cancer was just so extensive. She entered hospice care in mid-February. And on February 26, 2009, she stepped into the arms of Jesus. And I know the first words she heard were, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Acts 13.36 says, Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep, and he was buried with his ancestors. Just like David, I believe Hannah had fulfilled God's purpose for her in her generation, and so he took her home. And as brokenhearted and devastated as I was by her leaving, I knew my purpose wasn't complete. In those last days of Hannah's life, a total stranger came to the hospice center and left a book at the front desk for our family. It was a book called Holding On to Hope by Nancy Guthrie. And sometime in the weeks after Hannah died, when when I was ready to read something again, that was the book out of all the books we'd been given that I was drawn to, even though it seemed that Nancy's story was very different from mine. She and her husband had had two babies, Hope and Gabe, who were born with Zellweger syndrome, a congenital disorder that always results in death. And each of her little ones went to heaven within just a few months of their birth. 
but the book addressed issues of God's sovereignty and how you deal with it when your child is diagnosed with a terminal illness and you pray and plead and and beg for healing. And you know that God can and sometimes does heal, yet he chooses not to heal your child. It was exactly what I needed to read at that time. I got on Nancy's website and discovered that she and her husband host retreats for bereaved parents in Nashville, Tennessee. And I knew this was something we needed to attend, even though as a, as a classic introvert, this was something way outside my comfort zone. Even though it had only been a few months since Hannah had left us, we had already figured out that the people we were most comfortable being around, in fact, the people we craved fellowship with, were other bereaved parents who shared our faith in God. So we signed up. And we went, and it truly was the best experience we had had up to that point in our child loss journey. There were people there from 11 different states and Canada, and it was just so refreshing to be surrounded by people who understood, who we could talk with openly and honestly about our struggles, where our conversations were rich and focused on eternity. We came home from that event with a desire to recreate this concept of bereaved parent retreats in Arkansas. We talked about it a lot, and we prayed about it a lot, but we just didn't have any kind of catalyst to move us forward. And then God brought Larry and Janice Brown into our lives. Their son, Adam, a Navy SEAL, was killed in action in Afghanistan in March of 2010. We had attended the same church with them for a number of years, but we really didn't know them. We go to a fairly large church. We sit on one side and they sit on the other. They're in a little different age group than we are, and so we had just never had an occasion to get to know them. But after Adam went to heaven, we would see them at church, and we just had this understanding that that flowed between us that bereaved parents just naturally have. We invited them to lunch one day, and we spent about three and a half hours just talking. Toward the end of our time together, we told them about the retreat we had attended, how beneficial it had been for us, and how we really felt like God may be calling us to do something like that here in Arkansas. And these people who were meeting us for the very first time and who had just lost their son a few months ago said, let's do it. Talk about a step of faith. Before we left the restaurant that day, we had a date and a location in mind, and we were even talking about a name for this new ministry. We had our very first while we're waiting weekend for bereaved parents in April of 2011, and it was a wonderful event. We chuckle when we look back at it. We, we had told our attendees that they could arrive anytime between 4 o'clock and 5.30 with the event kicking off with dinner at 5.30. By about 3.30 that afternoon, we were so nervous. We were scared nobody was going to come, but we were probably even more scared that they were going to come, and we didn't know what we were going to do with them. But you know, God took over and just blessed in such an amazing way. It's just a testimony to the fact that he can use jars of clay to demonstrate his power. We charged a small fee for that first event, $150 that we had been advised to do so by a ministry consultant, you know, so the the attendees would feel like they had something invested in it. But about halfway through, we felt the Holy Spirit's prompting to return their money, which we did. This was not something we felt right charging people for, and we haven't charged anything for our event since. Over time, God saw fit to grow this ministry. Our initial plan was to host two retreats a year, and now, nine years later, we've had the privilege of hosting 129 events and have met almost 900 bereaved parents. 
The majority of our events are full weekend retreats for both singles and couples, but we also host one-day retreats just for moms and one-day retreats just for dads. We've built the While We're Waiting Refuge, a retreat center designed specifically for bereaved parents here in Hot Springs, Arkansas, where most of our events are held. Over the last couple of years, we've added some additional retreat locations, Prineville, Oregon, Northeast Maryland, Huntsville, Alabama, Sparks, Nevada, and coming next year, Phoenix, Arizona. You can get information about all of our different retreats and locations by visiting our website at www.whilewe'rewaiting.org. The While We're Waiting ministry is based on a scripture, Romans 8.25. It says, But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. We're all waiting for something that we can't see right now. Heaven. Being with our Savior and with our child. With God's help, we want to persevere on this journey, and we want to live well while we're waiting. I'm 54 years old right now. I have to face the fact that if I live a normal lifespan, I may have 20 or 30 or maybe even 40 more years here on this earth before I get to see Hannah again. So I have a decision to make. How am I going to live while I'm waiting for that day? Am I going to abandon my faith or apply my faith? Am I going to allow grief to make me bitter or allow God to use my experiences to make me better? That's a question every bereaved parent must answer. A good portion of our time at a While We're Waiting event is spent simply sharing our stories with one another. We've found that there's a lot of healing that comes just through sharing our children's stories with other parents who truly understand, who accept one another's stories as the sacred gifts they are, and who will remember and honor our children with us. We share our victories and our struggles, and we encourage each other. We pray for each other, and we say, yeah, me too. In the upcoming episodes of this podcast, we'll be visiting with some of those 900 members of our While We're Waiting family, inviting them to share their stories with us. We'll hear about their child or children in heaven, and we'll also invite them to share what they've learned about God and grief and loss and faith and brokenness and healing, and hear how they're seeking to live well while they're waiting for the day they'll see their child again. Our goal is to post an episode every two weeks. We hope you'll subscribe and plan to join us for these stories, and we pray that these stories will be a comfort and encouragement to you as you walk this road along with us. I want to leave you with a quote from Jerry Sitzer, who wrote the book A Grace Disguised about his experience of losing his wife, his mother, and his daughter in a car accident. He writes this, My story is part of a much larger story that I did not choose. I was assigned a role for which I did not audition. Yet I have the power to choose how I will live out that story and play that role. I want to live my story well and play my role with as much integrity and joy as I can. Thank you for joining me on this introductory episode of the While We're Waiting Hope After Child Loss podcast. If you'd like to learn more about this ministry, you can visit our website at www.whilewe'rewaiting.org. Please subscribe and share the podcast with anyone you feel might benefit from it. I look forward to spending time with you in the weeks and months ahead as we seek to live life well while we're waiting.